Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue, and we're coming to you from the campus of Middle Tennessee State University in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. People steal metal, but criminologists haven't looked into that aspect of theft very much. Dr. Ben Stickle, an assistant professor of criminal justice administration, has written a book about it, Metal Scrappers and Thieves, chronicles one man's journey through both a legitimate economic sideline and its illegal offshoot. And we'll explore this topic, hard though it may be, after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. MTSU President Sidney McPhee, in a note to the university community March 15th, underscored MTSU's standing as a destination of choice for first-generation college students and its long success in helping at-risk students who meet admission standards overcome obstacles often posed by tuition and fees. McPhee's message followed an announcement by the University of Tennessee system that students eligible for Pell Grant aid with a family income of $50,000 or less and who qualify for the Hope Lottery Scholarship can attend one of its institutions without paying tuition or mandatory fees. He said about 50% of MTSU's student population receive Pell Grant aid. About 30% of UT Knoxville's population receive Pell aid. And MTSU's Baldwin Photographic Gallery is featuring an exhibit of more than 25 large-scale works by Chicago-based photographic artist Patty Carroll from her ongoing Anonymous Women Camouflage and Calamity Project, which is now open through April 17th in the Bragg Media and Entertainment Building. The Anonymous Women series has been exhibited internationally and has won multiple awards. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. Ben, welcome. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me today. Why did this subject appeal to you? Well, it is an unusual crime type. I was looking for something a little bit different to research and something that would be a little more toward my skills, which is interviewing and talking with people. As a former police officer, I'd experienced a couple cases of this when I was working. Uh, But then when I was working to uh, go back to school to earn a PhD in criminal justice, I was remodeling the house we'd moved in. And I'd rolled a hot water heater out to the street on the collection day. Mm -hmm. I was going to let it sit there. And I had it back halfway down the driveway. And this guy pulls by in a company car and says, hey, you're going to throw that away? I said, yeah. He said, can I have it? I said, okay. And so he pops his little hatchback and we slide it through the back and into the front uh, passenger seat. And he scurries off down the road. And I'm kind of left scratching my head going, what on earth just happened? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that kind of got me interested. It was every time I saw something metal on the side of the road, it'd be gone within a few minutes. Uh, And so when I was looking for a topic to do my dissertation work on, uh, this seemed like a a natural fit uh, because it had a a policing element, a a crime element, but also, uh, as you mentioned in the beginning, a a legal element to it. There was nothing wrong with what that individual did, asking to take some metal that I was going to throw away and to go recycle it. And so that really got me interested in this as a topic. So how did you ingratiate yourself into the scrapping community? How did you establish your credibility? Yeah, that took quite a while. 
Uh, and so I actually have a chapter where I talk about what we uh, refer to as getting in, which is the concept of establishing that credibility in a culture. And so it began uh, by watching, uh, there's a movie about it, there's a TV show, a couple episodes called Scrappers. So I watched those. I've read uh, uh, blog posts and websites where people talked about it. I purchased uh, basically homemade books where people would print uh, how they go about scrapping. And so I started by that. And then I began actually uh, from the outside watching. So I'd go park outside of a scrapyard and I'd watch people come in and out and see what they did. Uh, and then gradually when I felt like I had a good knowledge of what was going on, I actually just blindly approached scrapyards and say, can I talk to whoever is the owner? And would basically tell them, hey, I'm doing research on scrapping, writing a book about this. Uh, do you care if I hang out? I won't get in the way. Let me talk to some of your customers. And uh, if they're willing to get their story, I promise I won't be you know, annoying. And uh, quite a few were absolutely happy to do that. In fact, I interviewed some of them, although they're not covered in the book, the owners. Uh, and so as I was uh, interviewing people at the scene, at the scrapyard, then I would kind of uh, do a little bit myself where I'd walk around neighborhoods, maybe drive along on a, a day that people would set trash out and try and talk with people. And little bit by little bit, I got into interviewing people and talking, getting the language down, looking at uh, what is appropriate for me to say, what's not, what's appropriate for me to do. Because uh, it's really uh, kind of a subculture, a whole, a whole group of people that have their own language, their own customs, their own things that you do and don't do. And once I kind of got better at that, I was able to really get into uh, and get acquainted with these uh, individuals and in many cases gain quite a bit of trust and entry into their lives. Where do legitimate scrappers find their materials? And where do they take them after they find them? Well, the first one is very easy, everywhere. You would be shocked when you start looking at where metal is. Now, it does change the urban environment. It's different from the rural environment, and so where they go. Um, but I had individuals who would go to farms, and they would ask a farmer, hey, do you have a section of your farm where you just leave all your old tractors and barbed wire fences and these types of things? And the farmer might say yes, and they would take a truck back there, and they would go take it to the recycling center. Urban scrappers are a little bit different. Uh, they may have an output for scrap metal. So they may be a plumber themselves and take all their scrap. Uh, they may be a, a roofing company who takes the excess roof materials and, and, and recycles it. Or you might be somebody who purposely just drives around looking for it. And there's going to be places that have a lot more of it than others, um, especially your older parts of town going to ha tend to have a lot more uh, metal waste in and around different places that they can go. And if it's set out for the trash, uh, generally uh, almost anything kind of considered fair game. Now, some states and cities have laws against that, but in general, um, no one would really consider going through your trash at, the, at your curb theft. It's a little bit like dumpster diving, isn't it? When the hungry and the homeless go through dumpsters knowing that restaurants and hotels throw away tons of, of perfectly edible food, these folks are just uh, doing the same thing with unedible products, right? This is very true. And so a lot of the people that I interviewed would, in fact, dumpster dive. And I climb down in the dumpster with many of them and kind of sat there and, and uh, I would usually uh, help them a little bit, kind of go through a few things if I found you know some metal, hand it to them. But uh, absolutely, it was a way that they were looking uh, for what people would normally not even pay attention to. And it's very similar, as you mentioned, you know, with the homeless. At some point, I guess, either from age or maybe maybe uh, you have enough financial status to, you know, to quit bending down to pick up the quarter, mm -hmm. right? Uh, whereas somebody else would be very happy to bend down and pick up the quarter. Same idea with the metal. Uh, maybe I don't want to mess with driving all the way to a scrapyard and recycling this uh, small item, so I'll just throw it away. But somebody else is very happy to do that for you. Time for a break here. We'll be back in just a moment. This is MTSU on the record.
The mission of the June Anderson Center for Women and Non-Traditional Students is to provide education, advocacy, direct services, outreach, and programming for the MTSU campus and surrounding community on gender-related issues. The center also assists older students who are trying to balance work, college, and family. It also sponsors a monthly legal clinic, career brown bag series, book club, and a newsletter twice a year. For all of the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Women in Science and Engineering, or WISE, helps college women prepare for and become involved in science-related careers. WISE nurtures women's interest in these fascinating and critical fields and provides mentoring and networking opportunities. The group's main goal is to assure women of their importance in all scientific and technical fields and to promote equal opportunity and treatment of women in science. I'm Dr. Judith Iriarte-Gross, WISE advisor. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. The book is called Metal Scrappers and Thieves. It was Dr. Ben Stickle's doctoral dissertation. And anytime you do a doctoral dissertation, it kind of helps you if you select an area of research that has not been heavily explored. Ben is an assistant professor of criminal justice administration. Who is a metal thief? What is his profile? What's his modus operandi? Uh, most of the metal thieves I talked to, both men and women, uh, tended to have, um, I think, a, quite a high percentage actually had some college experience, which I thought was very interesting. And a lot of them had some experience in metal. So something that would allow them to see the value of it. So they were former roofers, or they helped do some plumbing, or they worked in construction. And so they knew from experience that metal had some value with it. And how much money can you make as a legitimate scrapper uh, versus how much money you can make as a metal thief. Which one is more lucrative? Well, I'd say it can kind of depend. I met some very, very poor thieves. Uh, They were not good at what they did, uh, and they were not good at finding the metal, and they were caught or only had, you know, a handful of uh, copper pipes. On the other hand, I also talked with several who claimed to have had uh, several hundred thousand dollars worth of copper that they were able to steal and then recycle almost every year. Uh, They were quite adept at what they were doing. So it's possible to make a significant amount of money as a thief doing this. I'd say it's more likely to make it the lower end, which is pretty common for most forms of theft. Most forms of theft, you don't walk away with a huge amount of money, as you might think, a couple hundred dollars. On the other hand, depending on how you recycled legally, say you're a plumber uh, and your company allows you to keep the excess pipes that you use, uh, you could make a fair amount of money doing that as well. Or, for example, I've met individuals who uh, were businesses and uh, their business and the mechanic they didn't want the scrap metal from uh, all the old rotors from the brakes and tires. So they would recycle them. And they could make a fair amount of money doing that as well. So it really was a quite a, a wide array uh, of income. Can you make enough to be self-sufficient just doing this? Well, again, I think your and I's definition of self-sufficient might change drastically. So many people I talked with, uh, I identified as subsistence scrappers. And the concept there is these are individuals who are either homeless or live in very uh, meager uh, facilities. And the 5 to 10 or $15 a day that they can get collecting cans and finding old pieces of metal uh, and taking uh, some old copper wires and things like this that they find in dumpsters or other places is enough to get them some food, uh, maybe something to drink, some cigarettes. And that's really makes them happy. And so they're, they're fine with that. Uh, so if that's what you're interested in, then I think it perfectly can. I've met a few other people who made this really their profession. And so they had a car or a truck and they drove uh, 
routes looking for metal. They might have had an agreement with businesses, in which case they paid for their expenses, uh, for their rent and their and their uh, vehicle expenses and things like that as well. What can the recycling centers do? After all, they can't really tell what's been stolen and what hasn't been stolen, can they? This is one of the most difficult things about this topic and is an area that I'm doing more research on further that I've kind of coined as a concept of a commodity theft. So unlike most theft, if you go and you steal something from a store or you steal a car, there's usually some enjoyment you get out of it. It's something you want to use. Well, copper or any metal, you're not going to go home and you know, enjoy the copper, you're going to immediately take it somewhere to sell. And in addition to that, it's also very difficult because there's no real way to track it. So uh, what we see in the news is, you know, a lot of times the real obvious things that are stolen, a bronze statue or uh, a bronze uh, placard on a grave that has someone's name on it. And so that gets brought into a recycling center and your recycling person is like, oh, yeah. We don't think you're just throwing away 25 bronze placards from a cemetery. Uh-huh. Uh, and so those things can be very obvious. But a lot of other things, I mean, you think about a, a roll of copper pipe. There's no markings. Um, and if there are, they're not recorded very well. It's not like a, a phone or something that has high value, keep a serial number on it. Uh, so it's very, very difficult to actually uh, catch metal thieves because the metal is destroyed and remade into something else. Uh, and so technically it could be stolen a couple of times if you think about it that way. So it's very hard to catch, very hard to, to know anything about. On the other hand, if you're a metal thief and you go out in the country where some dude has all of these car parts just strewn about his front yard, and it's not uncommon to see that in the South, and you attempt to uh, purloin some of those metal items, you just might get your head blown off. Well, it's entirely possible. I mean, this is a, it's a risky uh, activity. Um, so anytime you have uh, a theft like this, this is uh, metal is a product of the built environment. So it doesn't occur naturally. Um, in the environment in the same way that we think. And so it has to be put somewhere by somebody, which yeah. necessitates either a trespass, if it's, as you said, out in the, in the country and in someone's property, mm-hmm. or even a burglary where you enter someone's house or a, a residence or a structure to actually take these items. And After so, yeah, all, we're some... talking about stealing processed metal. We're not talking about stealing ore. Right. Now, that's a whole other topic that I'd, I'd love to do some research on because that occurs as well. It's huh? in large quantities of natural um, you know, raw copper as it is that comes over on ships. Um, but yeah, this is processed. And so, yeah, there's definitely some risk in going into someone's house or trespassing on their property. Time for another break. We'll return in just a moment. This is MTSU on the record. The MTSU Department of Art has the newest facility for visual arts in the state with approximately 50,000 square feet of space, including high-tech computers and computer-driven equipment for multimedia, graphic design, printmaking, sculpture, painting, and ceramics. We feature a visiting artist lecture program and an exhibition program that exposes students to work by national and international artists. To find out more, visit mtsunews.com. Specialized training in forensic science prepares tomorrow's professionals through the Forensic Institute for Research and Education, or FIRE. The Forensic Anthropology Search and Recovery Team assists law enforcement with skeletal remains at crime scenes. Legendary forensic scientists provide lectures free to the public, and high school students work realistic crime scenes each summer at our CSI MTSU camp. I'm Dr. Hugh Berryman, Director of FIRE. For more details, visit mtsunews.com. Dr. Ben Stickle is an assistant professor of criminal justice administration, and his doctoral dissertation became a book called Metal Scrappers and Thieves, Scavenging for Survival and Profit. For a long time, you know, there have been chop shops out in the country. They, 
famous area in North Alabama called Sand Mountain. They're all over the place there. Places where they put pieces of cars together, not always safely, or they chop up old cars and sell the parts. Do they interact with the metal thieves? I mean, we're talking about the criminal element no matter how you slice it. One of the exciting things is that whenever I talk about my research, everyone is interested in it because almost everyone I've ever talked to says they've experienced this theft or know someone who has or have heard about it. Uh, So it's very popular. One of the interesting aspects of it is there have been a lot of laws that have tried to prevent this, and one of which is you have to have a driver's license or a government-issued ID when you turn something into a scrapyard to be sold. Well, as with any criminal element, and as with really all of us, we all find ways to get around the law. And so one of the easiest ways is to call a friend who maybe scraps legally and sell them your stolen item. Uh, I jokingly refer to it as fencing metal, if you <laughs> see the pun. But um, um, and, uh, and so the idea that I would call somebody who I know who is legally getting metal, I would sell him my stolen metal, and then he would take it and sell it as all good metal, as all legally acquired metal. Uh, so I definitely know that that's occurring. Uh, whether it's occurring in the same idea at uh, chop shops and things, I can only imagine it is, but I don't, I don't know directly if it is. As I was reading the book, I thought, how can this be so lucrative when plastic Space-age plastic has replaced metal in so many consumer items. Uh, Doesn't that cut down on the raw materials that the thieves have available to them? I think it absolutely does. And so what we're seeing is that uh, a transition from copper water pipes to plastic uh, and and a lot of things. So even just to reduce because air conditioners have a a copper coil system. and There's a large amount of copper in air conditioners. And so what we've seen is manufacturers moving away from copper to some degree because of the theft and uh, coming up with a new technology or a new way to uh, have these items without so much copper or at least so much valuable metal in them or just to remove metal completely. And so I do think that's impacting uh, thieves. In fact, um, some that I talked to said that they would purposely uh, break into uh, older structures that they felt were more likely to still have the copper wiring and the copper tubing um, and just more metal in them than a newer built uh, construction home. However, there's still plenty of metal out there. Most wiring in homes is still made out of copper. Um, and even uh, as sad as it is, what we've uh, seen is uh, thieves who would, uh, even though a majority of the joints for a plumbing system are a PVC or a plastic, mm-hmm. there's usually some copper involved. And they'll even go and break off two or three inches of the mm-hmm. copper and take that if there's nothing else. What's popular besides copper? Tin, tungsten, what else do they want? Well, copper is really kind of, uh, I hesitate to say the gold standard, but you get the idea. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So copper is by far the most valuable by pound. And when we look at any type of theft uh, and really any type of human interaction, we always look to do whatever is easiest. So if I can get more money with less weight and less effort, that's what I'm going to do. And so copper meets that uh, that uh, package. Uh, steel and other metals are common and are stolen. But again, you'll have to have uh, you know two or three tons of steel to get what uh, four or five pounds of copper would bring. So that really, that price difference is going to make copper a highly sought after metal. Um, brass um, is sought after in some other areas, uh, but really it's going to be uh, copper is the primary goal of most thieves. 
Is it legally okay to use a metal detector on a public beach if you were just looking for, you know, pieces of scrap metal? Maybe somebody lost their watch while they were enjoying the ocean or something like that. Provided it's a public beach and you're not trespassing on anybody's private property, is that kosher? Well, I would check before you did that with whatever city you're uh, thinking about doing this in, because their chances are there's some type of ordinance, uh, kind of like I mentioned with the dumpsters. Technically, it's uh, in some cities it's theft, even if it's set out by the road or in a dumpster. Um, and so it may technically be a theft uh, in a public area, but I don't think generally people would see it that way. Uh, of course, if you've been to the beach, you see beachcombers and things like this a lot. Uh, so I would probably check with your local ordinances. But in general, if you're in a place where everyone else is allowed to be and you're looking for things that have been lost or discarded, then that's generally perfectly fine. Much like if you found a $20 bill at a gas pump and there's no one around, you, mm-hmm. uh, what, what are you going to do? You know? Right. There aren't very many jurisdictions that keep track of metal theft, but you mentioned Indianapolis and Rochester in the book. Talk mm-hmm. about that. What did they do? Well, they were some of the first jurisdictions that actually delineated copper theft from other types of theft. And so if you think about crime statistics, one of the problems is uh, a lot of thefts are grouped together. Uh, and so over the years, as a new theft problem has emerged, we have um, broken out the different types of theft. So now we have theft of like a purse, which is different from theft of an item that gets shipped to your house, which is a different category of theft of a car. And so uh, really, uh, several years ago, there were almost no jurisdictions that cataloged theft of a metal item differently than just a theft of anything, like you walk into a store and steal something. So it was almost impossible to get statistics and find out how often this was happening. And Rochester, uh, New York, Indianapolis, Indiana were some of the first cities that actually said, this is a problem. And the only way we're going to know about this is if we actually catalog these thefts differently. And so they created a system where they could identify uh, those thefts so they could actually be uh, studied. I'm wondering why uh, jurisdictions like Birmingham or Pittsburgh did not develop specific rules or laws regarding that sort of thing, especially when the the steel industry, the smokestack steel industry was in its heyday. Uh, You would expect to find laws against metal theft in more heavily industrialized areas than in agrarian areas, wouldn't you? I think that's a a, a fair estimate. Um, The laws for metal theft have been kind of scattered over the years and oftentimes were included in other other crimes um, and other categories and not necessarily specifically drawn out for just metal. If some guy is trying to fence something that's stolen, is it easier to catch him if it's something that's not metal. In other words, if you're just stealing some copper tubing, for example, provided you didn't go into a store and hold somebody up at gunpoint, it must be difficult for law enforcement to try to ascertain what was stolen, from whom it was stolen. I I can't imagine how you remedy this if you're thinking of it in terms of um, investigations, criminal justice investigations. It's really very difficult. And again, that's why it's such a unique crime, because uh, the property is very difficult to identify. So if you um, even if you have, you know, uh, several thousand yards of copper tubing that is stolen uh, and you receive the call as an investigator and you respond and you investigate this and you start calling some local scrapyards. They're going to may they may be able to very easily tell you, oh yeah, that that came in recently, or they may say you can come out and look. 
Um, and, and, and walking through these scrapyards, you realize that the volume of business that they do, majority of it legally is just staggering. And so you go into a, a metropolitan area like Nashville and look for their scrapyards and say, hey, has anybody sold 1,000 uh, linear feet of electrical wire? And they're going to say, yeah, 14 people yesterday. Mm-hmm. And they're going to point to a corner where it's all stacked up and say, if you can figure out what it is, you can have it. Uh, and that's so different than, than a, a TV or a computer or a phone that's stolen where you can identify um, what it is. And then – uh, metal is usually rapidly sold. So because it's a commodity, the price changes and is traded on every day. And so if you steal an iPhone, the price for that's fairly level and you know goes down over time. But copper can go up and down a lot. So there's an incentive to sell it quickly, not because the scrapyard's doing something uh, nefarious, but because uh, they bought it for a price from you. And if they wait three weeks to sell it, that price could drop uh, 50, 60, 75 cents per pound. And they're sort of all of a sudden losing money that they could make off of you otherwise. So there's an incentive for a rapid turnover that makes sense given the system. I guess the recycling centers are very well aware of uh, metal theft much more than we are because I see recycling centers with very tall metal fences around them and high security and uh, extensive ways to lock things up. I mean, I never thought that anybody would want to steal the aluminum cans that Joey just took down there in his little red wagon. But obviously, they realize what they have, don't they? They do, and it happens. Some of that's by regulation to keep uh, sight and sound out of a neighborhood, you know, by uh, code or something. But uh, there's definitely, there were definitely uh, metal thieves I interviewed who broke into, if you will, scrapyards and stole metal uh, and sometimes took it back to the same place and sold it a couple of days later. So this, again, gives you an idea of how difficult it is to track, uh, to keep up with. I wouldn't try going down to the railroad tracks and getting into a dumpster owned by CSX, however. I, I think CSX would... Uh, have your head if they caught you dead. Well, if they find you, some of the limited research that has been done has been on the British railway system. And they had just all kinds of issues. And they had uh, metal thieves who went as far as to dress up like railway employees. And they would dig up live wires that power the entire electric train system, Mm -hmm. uh, putting not only themselves at risk, um, but thousands of commuter hours. So you lose power to a rail system, uh, you know, in Great Britain. And uh, you're looking at massive delays in transportation and traffic, and it's really been a nightmare over there. That's not what they steal from you on the New York and Washington subways. <laughs> <laughs> it may not be. <laughs> the book is called Metal Scrappers and Thieves Scavenging for Survival and Profit by Dr. Ben Stickle, published by Paul Grave Macmillan. It's his doctoral dissertation and uh, a subject that is not very uh, well researched or covered, generally speaking, in academia. It even has pictures in it, and Ben took all the pictures, didn't you? Yes, I did. Thanks for being our guest today. Happy to do it. We'll be right back. The Intercultural and Diversity Affairs Center helps to promote awareness and understanding of the wide variety of cultures represented at MTSU. The center provides information, referrals, and resources. Additionally, IDAC tries to make students from different cultures feel welcome and comfortable on campus so they can have every opportunity to fulfill their academic, social, and personal potential. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. 
The Middle Tennessee Writing Project is a program that fosters the effective teaching of writing to students in kindergarten through high school. The project hosts annual summer institutes where teacher participants teach and learn from each other effective techniques of teaching writing. In addition, the project sponsors summer writers camps for youngsters. MTSU is one of 185 sites of the National Writing Project and one of only two in Tennessee. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Gina Fan has the middle moment. Nearly 800 talented 4th, 5th, and 6th graders from across Middle Tennessee brought their ideas to MTSU's 27th Annual Invention Convention, earning trophies, ribbons, and plenty of praise, and some timeless advice from a pair of their peers, Heidi and Joey Hudica, New Jersey sibling inventors with their own family company, Fizzy Labs. So you went from piece of cardboard and Sharpie, and then you stayed up to like 3 a.m. to go on calls, mm-hmm. and then you made a nap. Yeah, at, plus a lot of coffee too. At <laughs> what, seven? Yeah. So it doesn't matter what your age is, you could do anything? Exactly, it doesn't matter what age you're at, what stage of life you're at, you could be you could be in fourth grade, you could be in third grade, you could be you could be an adult and create something awesome. And how many times did you have to fail in order to make it good? I failed so many times. I can't tell you the countless amount of prototypes I had to make. And that's an important lesson for everyone to know. It's alright to fail. It's okay to fail. It's okay to fail many times. Because one of those times, you're gonna strike gold. And you're gonna create something awesome and you're gonna wanna share that with everyone. That's MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU on the Record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University, is produced by the university's Marketing and Communications Office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.